he doesn't want to tell him. All he's doing, if they will tell him, assure these children. Can some people assure these children of the relaxation of stepping over to the next plane? We've set an example for others. We've set 1,000 people who say we don't like the way the world is. Take our life from us. We laid it down. We got tired. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. That's Jim Jones just moments before he and over 900 other Americans committed the largest mass suicide in history. Now, this was an audio tape that was found when authorities arrived on the scene. In fact, the music that you hear in the background, Emily, is someone that's playing the organ while poisonous Kool-Aid was passed out to every man, woman, and child at the compound in Guyana. Pretty creepy, right? You ever hear the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid? This is exactly what they are talking about. It really is. That's where it comes from. It is. What were they all doing in this tiny South American country in the first place? How did they get there? And how could so many people fall victim to the words of this madman? I knew there was a reason why I was never a big Kool-Aid drinker, and maybe this was it. But that's what we're going to be talking about on today's episode. I'm Andy. I'm Emily. Ready to get this thing going? Let's do it to it. For many, the People's Temple was a place for salvation. For others, it was kind of a way to serve humanity and live your life with a purpose. It was really a lot of things, but in the beginning, it was something that was very different from where it was at the end. At the end, it was the epicenter of one of America's greatest tragedies we've ever had. And it didn't even take place on American soil. So, Emily, I got to ask you, before this podcast, had you ever heard of Jonestown before? I sure have, Andy. So you do have a gist of it, and most Americans know at least a little bit about the Jonestown Massacre. But here is kind of the cliff notes for the podcast. Uh, So Jim Jones, who is definitely the antagonist here. Psycho. He was born in eastern Indiana in the year 1931. Now, he founded what later would be called the People's Temple in 1955 at the age of just 24, which is kind of crazy. I certainly didn't do anything like that at the age of 24. No, certainly not. Well, and it's weird that he got so many people. Well, I suppose the majority of his followers didn't come till later, but... Yeah, he had a decent following still before he moved, but it was really when he went to California... In 1965, where he moved his temple there, that's when he got a substantial following. He had several temples that were strewn across the state, but their headquarters were in San Francisco. What even was the 60s and the 70s? There was cults galore. 
serial killers. Like, everybody talks about the 60s and 70s, like, oh, peace, love, like, free love, drugs. But. Yeah, not really. There were so many cults. There were so many serial killers. Well, not only that, there were there were riots. There were just uh, assassinations, all kinds of things going on in the 60s. It's crazy. It's very reminiscent of the time that we live in today because uh, things are a little crazy right now. But in the 70s, now, he kind of shifted. And much of his focus turned to activism, specifically radical left-wing politics, even communism. Now, these, these days we hear a lot about right-wing activists and right-wing people. Back then, at least with him, it was left-wing. So it was far left. You don't hear about that so much more these days. Interesting. So... Emily, you might be asking yourself, how in the hell did this crazy guy get so many damn followers? Yeah, I'm curious because, I mean, the little bit that I know, I would look at him and be like, you lost your damn mind, sir. (laughs) Well, a big part of it was the notion of true equality for all. So here's something that was different for that time. He accepted all races And in fact, a large portion of his congregation at Jonestown was African-American. Actually, 68% of the people at Jonestown were African-American. Oh, really? And he, yeah, he also accepted gays and lesbians, which back in the 60s and 70s was almost unheard of for a church. Yeah, kind of like what we talked about last week on the Pride episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And from the pulpit, he could be heard saying this. Everybody is gay. All men are homosexual and all women are lesbians. People wrapped up in heterosexual relationships are not mature enough to deal with this. This leads to domestic violence and the abuse and abandonment of women. Gays and lesbians who are out have faced suffering and ostracism. Therefore, they are empathetic to the treatments of poor people and racial minorities. Gays and lesbians are the most loyal people in our movement. That's pretty progressive stuff for the time. So you can see how he he was charismatic and he was drawing people to him. People that had been suffering, gays, lesbians, blacks, Hispanic Americans, they wanted to feel like they were part of something bigger. And that's what a cult leader does. They kind of draw you in. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, I just wonder, was it authentic on his side? Did he actually support gay and lesbianism? Or was it basically just a sales tactic thinking these people are oppressed? If I sit and act like I support them and I, you know, yada, 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 I'm just going to get that much more people to follow me. I think it was a little bit of both. And we'll, we'll yeah. get into this a little bit later in the podcast, but uh, Jim Jones was actually bisexual himself. Oh. So well. obviously he didn't really have a problem with bisexuality or gays or lesbians, uh, but also he was a master salesman. And we're going to find out more about that here throughout the podcast. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows with Jones. If you crossed him or if he kind of caught wind that you might be leaving the temple, you were on his list. Like Santa for like the naughty list. 
Hi everyone, this is Cassie and Wine and True Crime has transformed into True Crime Trophy. I'm bringing you cases straight out the True Crime Trophy cabinet and I need you to help me sort them into gold, silver or bronze. Get in touch with us on our social media and rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you on the next episode. Hey partners, I'm Denisha. And I'm Dana. And we are the host of the new podcast called Partners in Crime, where we discuss true crime, paranormal and the weird. Join us on your daily adventures, whether you're working out, driving, chilling with a friend, and if you're brave enough, just before you go to bed. Like, subscribe, leave a review, and check us out. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's absolutely free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a whole lot more. Basically, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. And you want to know what else? You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which is really cool. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Followers called him father. And they really showed a fierce devotion to Jones. And if you didn't, your days were probably numbered. Case in points, Bob Houston. He was a temple member in California whose mutilated body was found near the train tracks on October 5th, 1976. That was three days after Jones obtained a tape telephone conversation with Houston's ex-wife in which he said that he was going to be leaving the temple. So, coincidence? I think not. And that's really just one example. There were a myriad of accusations from former members. Some former members of the temple accused Jones of abuse, both physical and sexual, druggings, and even mind control. Mind control? No, thank you. How? How? Stay away from my mind, please. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to mess around with <laughs> what's going on in here. I, no, you don't. Right? You don't want to know. I don't want to know, and I'm I'm stuck with it. I can attest to that. So, no surprise here, but uh, by this point, Jim Jones and the People's Temple were on the radar of the U.S. government. Investigations and inquiries began to pop up, and I think he wanted to go somewhere so far away, Emily, where he wouldn't be on anybody's radar and wouldn't have to worry about the authorities looking into his church. He had millions of dollars and that was thanks to his members that were giving up all of their assets to him. We're talking houses, property investments, all of that they gave to Jim Jones when they joined his church. So when they joined the temple he started looking for a new home. Was that a requirement or just something they did? I'm not sure if it was a requirement, but uh, it was certainly something that they all offered. Yeah. And he started looking for a new home outside of the United States. So where do you go if you're a super rich cult leader 
and want a world superpower to leave you alone. Well, a third world country, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what he did. So when things kind of reached to a boiling point, Jones and a large portion of the People's Temple, they left San Francisco in 1977 for a plot of land that Jones had purchased in Guyana. It was intended to be kind of a socialist utopia, and they named it Jonestown. Now, there's a great documentary, which you and I briefly mentioned before. In 2007, it came out, which details the events of the cult as they kind of transitioned into Jonestown. And even Jim Jones's son plays a prominent role in this. You kind of see them deforesting this vast area in the middle of the jungle. They're singing songs and living in what looks like that utopia that they had always dreamed of. But many wanted to leave as soon as they got there, and they kind of felt a sense of dread about what was to come. So one of the things that they did, it was something that was called White Nights. And it was held in the middle of the night. He would sound a siren, like, you know, those tornado sirens that you hear in the Midwest. He would sound one of those. The first Wednesday of the month. Yeah, in your area. And it, he would sound it over the compound in the middle of the night. And then he would come on over the PA system saying, white night, white night. And that was kind of an emergency code that his followers knew meant to meet and test their faith. So during these white nights, to keep the people who were a little vulnerable, he wanted to keep them afraid and under control. That's what cult leaders do. And then they would rehearse mass suicides. So they would pretend that they were committing mass suicides. And Jones did this to have a test of loyalty from his followers. It's fucked up, but that was his way of making sure that they were loyal. Gross. First of all, you're going to wake me up out of a dead-ass sleep in the middle of the night. I know. And make me come practice killing myself? <laughs> I'd rather actually kill myself than do that. No. Don't wake me up in the middle of the night with a freaking tornado siren. No. (laughs) And by the way, these assemblies that he would have, um, they also had armed men standing at the perimeter. So if the talk of suicide and the whole fire and brimstone thing weren't bad enough, the if you thought of leaving, you could actually be shot as well. It was pretty messed up. Yeah, it was definitely a yikes situation, that's for sure. Now, just because Jim Jones and his followers left the country, that doesn't mean they were forgotten by the rest of the United States. Family members grew worried, and by 1978, some of his followers were able to defect from the cult, and they saw some really abhorrent things that were going on. If they left the country, but they had already given him all their money, all their possessions, like, was he funding these people's travel? Yes, getting there in the first place, yeah, he funded all of that. 
So he would, and once they were there, he funded their food, their shelter, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But somehow a few of them left, they defected, and they gave U.S. authorities a whole lot of reports of physical and sexual abuse going on, as well as human rights violations, money laundering, you name it. It was happening down there. The abuses that were going on, was most of that carried out by Jim himself? Or was it like his guards that he had under employee? Or was it just kind of everywhere? Yeah, it was him and some of his higher ups. And he had a a number of notable mistresses that he had. And other people, you know, you can imagine a person of his power how much sway he had over everyone else. And some of the people that defected mentioned that, that he was abusing them and other people throughout the time that they were there. And there were a whole lot of reports of that when they came back. And it became such an issue that U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan, who was a congressman for California's 11th district, which is, where the original Jones compound kind of took place in San Francisco, he had to get involved in this. Mm -hmm. And a number of young people who lived in his district had joined the cults and their family members were writing to Congressman Ryan and calling his office saying, Hey, my loved one is, being held against their will and they want to get out and they're not allowed. So the congressman actually put together a small group of people to help bring them home, which we talk a lot about politicians who don't do their jobs these days. This is a politician who went above and beyond to actually help those who were in need. So bravo to him. As he should, as more politicians should. Yeah. Yeah. Take a play from uh, uh, Congressman Ryan's playbook, that's for sure. On November 14th, 1978, Congressman Ryan left Washington, D.C. for Jonestown with a few of his staff members. So he had 17 Bay Area relatives of the People's Temple members. Several newspaper reporters came with them, and even an NBC news team was with them as well to report the events as they were going on. Oh, wow. And, yeah, they first landed in Georgetown, which is the capital of Guyana. And that's about 150 miles from Jonestown, so it's a ways off. Yeah. And at this point, Congressman Ryan realizes that Jones is stalling. He doesn't want them there right now. In fact, he probably doesn't want them there at all. Right. And he said... He says it's none of their business to be there, essentially. And Congressman Ryan is like, um, actually, it is our business. Look, buddy, you can be an authoritarian down here, but these people, they at least need to kind of have the freedom to come and go as they please. If they want to leave, they should be allowed to leave. Absolutely. And finally, the group secured a small plane to land them at an airport just outside the compound of Jonestown. So they get there, and Jones is, he's, he's rolling out the red carpet at first, right? He's trying to put up a front. Right. And one of the members slips a note 
to somebody in the group asking them for help leaving the compound. And Jones sees this, and that person is whisked away. Now, later, the group heads back to the airports after Jones refuses to let them spend the night there, which, talk about a red flag. Yeah. But the next morning, the group returned to Jonestown and found more people who wanted to leave. So around 5 p.m., they headed to the airports to transport some of the Jonestown followers back to Georgetown, the capital, when out of nowhere... They were attacked. Surprise, surprise. So Jones's men opened fire on the group at the airport just before they were about to take off. And it actually killed Congressman Leo Ryan. He died in the attack. No. Yeah. Three journalists also died. And a defecting temple member who was trying to get out of there also died. And nine others were wounded. And get this. One of the people that was wounded was Ryan's aide, Jackie Spear. Now, she would later become a congresswoman herself. Good for her. So she would have survived the attack and be a congresswoman herself. Now, Ryan's body was littered with over 20 bullets. So it's just crazy. I mean, it's not just one shot. Were all of the other ones like that? Well, Jackie Spear, she had five bullets in her body. Now, she survived, thankfully. She went 22 hours without medical attention. Because remember, we're in a South American country. Wow. And it took a while to get back to civilization. But somehow, the plane was still able to take off. Immediately, they radioed inner reports of the attack So now, Emily, the U.S. ambassador is involved. The president of the United States at the time is involved, Jimmy Carter. He's monitoring the situation. And the United States uh, puts a call into the government of Guyana. And they're like, hey, go get this guy. Take care of this right now. But it wasn't until midday the next day until the Guyanese army could reach the compound after kind of cutting through all the jungle that they had to go through. And when they arrived, what they found was unimaginable. So after the attack, Jones obviously knew the gig was up and that he was going to go down. So he thought it was time to finally implement that mass suicide that he had been preparing his followers for for months. I don't know. Do you think they like, well, just keep going because you'll probably answer my question. Like, did they know that this was the time that they were all going to die or did they think it was another practice? Many of them knew some of them. And we'll get to this later actually 
slept through the entire thing. Thank God for them. <laughs> right. But it's like, you know, all the other ones they were there for the rehearsals, but then they sleep through the one where everybody actually kills themselves. But can you imagine walking out and being like, oh, so it happened. <laughs> they did the thing. And it, there's a whole tape you can find on YouTube, which is pretty disturbing to listen to. But it plays kind of the ending and the entire group of over 900 people were brought outside. So Jones, he takes to the microphone and he basically explains why this is a good thing that they're all about to die, which is fucking ludicrous. But he rambles for a good 45 minutes. Now, part of that you heard at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. And. Every person, aside from the armed guards that Jones and a few of the higher-ups are given that cup of Kool-Aid, which is laced with cyanide to drink. And as we mentioned before, that's where the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. Now, those who would not drink it, they were either shot or they themselves were injected with cyanide, which sounds just... Fucking awful. Wasn't this supposed to be a utopia? I mean, come on. Yeah. Doesn't really sound like it to me. No. Uh, No. Like, this isn't isn't your regular gathering of, you know, having tea and crumpets with your your congregation. Jones had actually previously taken large shipments of cyanide into Jonestown for several years prior to when they even arrived. You shouldn't be able to just go to your local market and pick up some cyanide in bulk. Let's go to Costco and get some cyanide, guys. Guess where he got it? Where? So he apparently he had a jeweler's license, and that's how he was allowed to purchase so much cyanide, which I don't know... Oh, is that like the forbidden... Why? Apparently, cyanide is used to clean gold. Yeah, have you seen the forbidden... It, it's called the Forbidden Kool-Aid. Um, mm-hmm. no. On TikTok, there's there's a jeweler who gets really crusty-looking jewelry, puts it in this blue liquid, and then it comes out all sparkly and beautiful. And then in the comments, everything or like he now the the owner of the account or whatever hashtags Forbidden Kool-Aid. Oh no. Uh oh. Okay, where did we leave off? Should we just like apologies in advance that my one-year-old woke up? So if you hear baby noises in the background from now on, just ignore it. I think we just got that. Okay, disclaimer. Emily, even the mothers who were objecting to their kids being given the Kool-Aid, they were kind of shot down by Jones and told, look, this is what's supposed to happen. One temple member Christine Miller, she was kind of in dissent towards the beginning of the tape. And you can hear this in the audio. And other members apparently cried. Jones actually counseled them and said, listen, stop these hysterics. This is not a way for people who are socialists or communists to die. No way. He says, no way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. Did any of them 
pretend to drink the Kool-Aid, but actually not drink it. Yes. A few. Lots. A, a few. Just a few, which I would have. Tr- I mean, that's what I would have done. Yeah. Imagine you end up in this cult. Like when when they when the majority of the majority of them joined, did they know that there was basically a suicide pact? No, they didn't. Not not even close. I mean, because remember, most of them joined in California and they just thought that they were moving to Guyana to get away and start this great utopian yeah, society, this communist socialist society. You um, get there and then all of a sudden you realize it's just basically a giant suicide club. Yeah, it's it was all bullshit to begin with. And that's kind of what these cults do. Yeah. I mean, that, that this is, that the, is what they do. You're right. This is, I mean, the typical cult that brings you in. Everything's great. They brainwash you, and then you can't get out. And that's what had happened to so many people here. Jones can be heard saying later in the tape, don't be afraid to die, that death is just stepping over into another plane, and that death is a friend. Now, his wife apparently protested killing the children, and Jones even forcibly had his wife restrained. And then eventually she was made to poison herself as well. All total, 918 members of the commune were killed. Was there a count of how many members there were, like, including, like, you know what I mean? Some people escaped. Yeah, it was closer to a thousand. Uh, and we'll get to. Oh, so that many people well, left. Well, or had left previously or, or were in other parts of the country. And we'll, we'll touch on a few of those here in a few moments. But okay. for me, the most disturbing part of out of the 918 people that died that day, 304 of them were kids. Oh, my God. I mean, so not only is it the largest mass murder-suicide in the history of the country – the largest murder of kids that you could ever think of too over 300 at one time. Just awful. But Jim Jones himself, did he drink the Kool-Aid? What do you think? No, no, he didn't. He was found by the Guyanese army with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And why? Apparently he was waiting for everybody else to kill themselves just to make sure that they all, drank the Kool-Aid. But why didn't he drink the Kool-Aid? Why did he shoot himself? Don't know. Weird. Don't know. So his sons, actually, Stephen, Jim Jr., and Tim Jones, they actually survived the events of the day because being members of the People's Temple's basketball team, they were actually playing an away game in Georgetown at the time of the poisoning. So... And his sons to this day, especially his son, Stephen, really came around to seeing the lights and uh, speaks out against his father all these years later. Good. As he should. It's like, sorry. Well, but then, you know, at the same time, it's like, I, I guess if that if Jim Jones was my dad, I would change my name. I would leave. I would go underground. Right. And he didn't. I mean, and you kind of got to give him credit for that. You yeah. know, because that's not an easy name to have. No. So 
Three high-ranking temple survivors claimed that they were given an assignment, and they escaped death as well. Tim Carter and his brother Mike, who were 30 and 20, and then another guy named Mike, were given luggage that contained over half a million dollars in U.S. currency, $130,000 in Guyanese currency, and an envelope, which they were told to deliver to the Soviet embassy in Georgetown. Remember, this is still the days of the Soviet Union, which was a big communist country. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out what was in the envelope that they gave to the Soviets. I, I never found out what was in there. But I'd be, I'm really curious to know. Yeah. And how, I mean, I'm sure that like the CIA figured it out or something. But yeah. uh, us common folk don't know. Drop the tea. <laughs> right. One follower survived by hiding under a building when he was told to go out to the middle of the compound. He just ran underneath a building, I guess. Uh, Grover Davis, a man who was 79 years old, he was hearing impaired and he he missed the announcement because he didn't hear it over the loudspeaker. Um, another person laid in a ditch and pretended to be dead. Um, another guy uh, found out what was happening and crawled underneath a bed and then walked out after the suicides were completed. And a few people just slept through it all. Did any of the ones that slept through it that were on board regret not being there, you think? It doesn't sound like it. Um, It it sounds like most of them pretty quickly afterwards, I don't know what the proper psychological term is, but they were unbrainwashed. It didn't take long to kind of for them to figure out what, what was going on and maybe reassimilate back into society. Yeah, like they woke up a little bit. But talk about some severe PTSD. Yeah. And as you can imagine, here in the States, the reaction was kind of a mixture of just total shock and anger. Good evening. In one of the strangest cases of mass suicide and murder ever recorded, the government of Guyana said today that the bodies of 383 men, women, and children have been found at Jonestown, a remote jungle camp in South America. All of them were Americans, members of a religious cult called the People's Temple. 163 women, 138 men, and 82 children. Most apparently died of poison, drunk from a large vat, although some had been shot to death. Among the dead, the leader of the cult, the Reverend Jim Jones, his wife, and one of his sons. And sadly, that wasn't even the last of it. At their headquarters in the Guyanese capital of Georgetown, Uh, The temple member Sharon Amos received a radio communication from Jonestown that instructed the members at headquarters to take revenge on the temple's enemies and then commit revolutionary suicide. Later, after police arrived at the headquarters, Sharon escorted her children. She had three kids. She escorted them into a bathroom and she was wielding a kitchen knife and she killed all three of her kids. Oh, my God. And then her and her aide killed themselves, which is just absolutely terrible. I mean, they were 150 miles away from Jim Jones, and he still had that grip on them. Still had that kind of influence. Yeah. Yeah, that's insane. And it's, it's hard to know where to end one like this because... It's been a big part of our society ever since this went down. 
A few years afterwards, Congressman Leo Ryan was actually posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Wow. Which it was only has only been offered to a few people, like the Wright brothers got it and a few other people. So it was a huge honor. But really, I mean, he it's amazing. He's the only member of Congress in our history that's ever died in the line of duty. Hmm, interesting. So... And you th- if you think about it, I mean, he took some major risks when he d- went down there. He asked other congressmen to go with him, and nobody did. So yeah, they were like, nah. Yeah. None for me, thanks. Right. Not, not, my, not my monkeys, not my circus. Mm-hmm. And as, as mentioned, his aide ended up taking his seat in Congress. She recently wrote a book about the whole deal, Jackie Spear. And oh. there have been documentaries, movies that have come out. But... Mm-hmm. It's something that still resonates with people almost 50 years later. And when people read about it for the first time, you look at that number of 900 and you're like, how is that even possible? Yeah. But this, yeah. this kind of sheds light on how something like this is possible. How people who are vulnerable, they can fall into these cults and sometimes they're never heard from them again. So that's it for the Jonestown Massacre. Emily, what's going on next week? Next week, we are heading all the way up to Maine to talk about murders that took place over one weekend at a bed and breakfast in a really tiny town. Yeah, he's excited about that one. He is super excited. He's going to have to wait another 17 years before he can hear it. That's okay. Unless... Unless he gets into your audio files when he's like a teenager and he's like, wait, mom, you did a podcast? What's a podcast? You never told. <laughs> That's probably what they'll say. Probably. I mean, I think some sort of podcast will be around, but we'll just call it something different. Yeah, probably. We always have to call things different. We have an announcement. What? Wait, do we? What? What's our announcement? It's not necessarily happy or sad. Maybe a little bit of both, but... We are coming to the end of our very first season of Unnatural here. So you'll get this episode and one episode next week. And then we are taking a short break. A short break. And I would say bittersweet. It's a bittersweet moment for us because we have so much fun doing this podcast. We love bringing it to you each and every week. I think that it, it's something I don't know about you, Emily. I look forward to recording this every time we get a chance. And I even look forward to these extra special moments, like when you and I are doing these Zoom chats and I see your cat cleaning herself in the background or your little one is creating havoc behind you. That's always fun, too. You never know. It's always unpredictable. Yeah. This is our very first episode featuring my one-year-old. So, Yay! And he's just about to be one, right? Yeah, just about. Well... I'm excited for next week to wrap things up. But while we are on a break, um, we will still be posting fun stuff on the socials. So make sure you come and check us out there. We are on Twitter at Unnatural the Pod, Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast, Facebook page, Unnatural the True Crime Podcast. Uh, we have an email. UnnaturalThePodcast at gmail.com. And we do have the Patreon page. 
If you want to support us, we would greatly appreciate it. That is patreon.com slash unnaturalthepod. I'm looking forward to a nice bed and breakfast next week. Have some pancakes, whip up some waffles, some scrambled eggs, hash browns. And some people are going to get murdered. And dismembered, maybe, even. Yeah. Can't wait for it next week. We'll talk to you then. See ya. Moisturizing. You were like uh, Mustafa there for a second. Mustafa? Yeah. Mufasa. Yeah. Rafiki. Yeah, Mufasa. Who's Mustafa? I have no idea. I feel like that's somebody too. Mustafa. Oh, apparently he's a poet. Anyway. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's leaving the temple. Jim Jones is coming for your ass. Ah.